Shabbat Shalom. I'm Monty Judah with Lion and Lamb Ministries, and this is our Arab Shabbat broadcast for B'nai Shalom, the Internet Messianic Congregation. Thank you for joining us. This is our last Sabbath in the month of June, and summer is now upon us. So um, we're all excited about the season that we're in. Here in Oklahoma, we have one of the benefits of that we have a seasonal change every three months, and that's about how long I last on a season before I want to change. So I'm in, living in the perfect place, uh, being able to, I got tired of spring, now I'm ready for summer, and then about three months I'll be tired of summer and ready for fall. So I live in the right place uh, for it, and we always take note of the change of the seasons here. All right, uh, let me just give you a couple of quick announcements, as you know, uh, we are planning for the Feast of Tabernacles already in September. We'd love to have you be a part of it. You can go to tabernaclesevent.com to register to be a part of that. Do not be delaying on this. Plan ahead and come and join us um, in the camp. We're expecting about a 1,000 brethren again this year. We'd love to have you be a part of that celebration. And then, of course, toward the end of the year in December, we're also holding a Hanukkah conference here in the Norman, Oklahoma area. We'd love to have you come and be a part of that while we observe the Festival of Lights. All right, without any further ado, let's go to Kiddush and we'll get our Sabbath underway. Shalom. We're the Judah family and welcome to our home. Please join us as we usher in the Sabbath. to be a light unto the nations and has given us Yeshua the Messiah the light of the world Amen Amen and now the Kiddush blessing Amen. over the cup Baruch HaTadonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam Borei Pri HaGahafin Amen Blessed art thou O Lord our God King of the universe who creates the fruit of the vine Amen. Now the hamotzi, blessing over the bread. Hamotzi lechem min haaretz, 
We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch atadonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, hamotzi lechem min haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. (laughs) Husbands, let's bless our wives. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for our wonderful wives that you've given to us, Lord. And we thank you, Lord, for beautiful wives of Proverbs. Thank you, Lord, for my wife and the blessing that she is to our home and to our family. Bless her, encourage her, and strengthen her as she teaches and educates the children, as she wakes up in the morning to take care of them and see about the ways of the household. Father, I thank you for the wonderful blessing she is to me and to our home. I pray that you would encourage her and strengthen her and pour out your very best blessing upon her on this Sabbath day. So we love you and bless you and thank you for all of these things, Lord. In Yeshua's name, amen. Amen. Now let's bless our sons. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ephraim and Manasseh. Amen. (laughs) Now let's bless our daughters. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And may you be as Ruth and as Esther. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. Shabbat Shalom. Bahu et Arunai Hamvorach. Baruch Arunai Hamvorach Leolaham Vahed. Bless the Lord who is to be praised. Blessed be the Lord who is praised for all eternity. Amen. And now the Michumocha. Micha mocha ba'elim Adonai. Micha mocha nedahar ba'chodesh. Nohora techilot Now the blessing of the Messiah. Baruch Adonai, Elheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Natan Lanu Et Derech, HaYeshua B'Mashiach Yeshua. Altogether, blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the way of salvation in Messiah Yeshua. Amen. And now the Veshamru. 
Veshamru Vene Israel et Hashabat, La Sot et Hashabat, Ladrotam, Barit Olam, Bene of Ayom, Bene Israel, Othi Lerlam, Keshashet Yamim, Asadonai, et Hashmaim, Vet Haret, Vayom Hashavi, Shabbat, Vainafash. Altogether, the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath and observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth. And on the seventh day, he ceased from his work and was refreshed. Amen. And now the Shema, if you'd all turn and face east toward Jerusalem for the watchword of our faith, the Shema. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Baruch Shem, Kivod Malchuto, Le'olam Vayed, Yeshua HaMashiach, Hu Adonai. Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. Blessed be his name, whose glorious kingdom is forever and ever. Yeshua the Messiah, he is Lord. Amen. And now the Ve'achavta. Ve'achavta et Adonai ochecha b'chol levavcha uv'chol nashicha, uv'chol meodecha, v'heyu ha'devarim ha'ale asher nechim e'zavcha ha'yom alevavcha, v'shinan tam l'avenecha, V'tepardabam b'shivtecha, b'yetecha, uv'lechtecha, v'derech u'shakbika, uv'kumika. U'kershatam la'ot ha'yadecha, v'heyu la'totofot b'inenecha, u'chetatam ha'mazuzot b'techa, u'vishirecha. All together. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words which I command you this day shall be upon your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall speak of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. You shall bind them for a sign upon your hand, and they shall be for frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them upon the doorposts of your house and upon your gates. Amen. This first song has a bit of a testimony to it. Um, I was desperate to get my in-laws to understand
it means to be separate from a land, a people, a city, Jerusalem, a holy place. Yes, Father, you are omnipotent and you are omnipresent. You're everywhere. But, Father, we've been exiled and estranged from you in many ways. And in many ways, Father, we long to return to our inheritance. And Father, restore us in our day. the mind. 
Please turn with, the, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Numbers, to chapter 22, where our portion will begin for this week. As you open the scripture, let me do the blessing before the Torah. Baruch Adonai Eloheinu Melech HaOlam, Asher Bachabanu Mikol HaAmim, Venetan Lanu Etorato, Baruch Adonai Nonten HaTorah Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has chosen us from among all peoples and has given us your Torah. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Our Torah portion this week is entitled Balak, where we will learn of the name of a king by the name of Balak, who is uh, of the Amorites, or is of Moab, the children of Israel who have traveled now, and they've wandered in the wilderness for a number of years. They're now coming to the end of their 40-year journey wandering in the wilderness. At the end of last week's portion, the children of Israel conquered two kingdoms, the kingdoms of Og and the kingdom of Sihon, and they then came and they were then dwelling across from the across from Jericho, across the Jordan River in the modern day area of Jordan, and this was in the near the kingdom of Moab. Well, there's another king there, and he sees what the children of Israel had done and, and were doing, and they had the stories of them coming up out of Egypt and what they did to Egypt and what what they have been doing for 40 years wandering in the wilderness, there's a little bit of a reputation that has come along for the children of Israel. This is per, probably pretty common. Stories, uh, messengers, travelers, uh, uh, nomads would have been in the area at the time, and there have been stories of, did you hear about this great company of people that came out of Egypt, that all of these plagues, e- Egypt is destroyed from all of these plagues, and they crossed the Red Sea, and, and they say God spoke to them for, at this mountain, and all these things, and these stories would have gotten out, and all of these people would have been aware of these things, these going, these things happening of the children of Israel in the wilderness. Our story shifts here in Numbers chapter 22, where we now talk about this king named Balak, and he's going to hire a man, a prophet by the name of Balaam, to come, and he wants to hire him so that he can curse Israel, so that then when they go to war, they would be able to defeat them. You see, the kingdom of Israel, or these this people of Israel, is great strong, great in number, they have a God on their side, they're going to be traveling along, how are we, if, if I don't like this people, how am I going to deal with these people? And so this is what this king comes up with. I'm going to hire this prophet who is known throughout the area of being a diviner, a one who speaks words and who will curse people and they'll be cursed and who will bless people and they'll be blessed. And so he's going to hire this guy to curse the children of Israel. The one thing that Balak has at least going for him, at least he's smart enough to know that this is a spiritual thing when it comes to the children of Israel. Other kingdoms might decide to go to war against the, the Israelites and they're just going to get they're going to get wiped out. That's what seems to happen when the children of Israel go to war. He, Balak, is at least smart enough to know, look, they, they got a God on their side. We all believe in gods. They all, all the people all had their own gods and they had high places and they worshiped to the gods of Baal and others and things like that. So they believe in this, in the power of God. He's at least smart enough to know this is a spiritual thing. If I'm gonna, if I'm gonna go and try to fight the Israelites, I'm gonna have to get a God on my side. I'm gonna have to have them be cursed or I'm not gonna be able to defeat them with just physical brute force. That's the one thing Balak has going for him. Otherwise, this is a guy who was not a good guy. 
he was uh, immediately he's against the children of Israel. Rather than rather than going and sending messengers to the Israelites and say, "Hey, well, we hear about all these stories of you coming out of Egypt, and, and and this is what you do. What are your intentions? Where are you going? Are you intending to conquer me and my kingdom and the Moabites and all these things?" If he had sent those messengers, wouldn't Moses have said, "No, of course not. We, we're just traveling, passing through. We're attempting to get into the land of Canaan across the Jordan." That's where that's our final destination. That's where we're intending to go. And we're not here to, to, to live in your land here on this side of the Jordan. If Balak had sent those messengers, that's what he would have heard. But he didn't send those messengers. He was, he was jealous of the Israelites and all these things. And every king and kingdom would have been. What is this company of people? What, what, what is these, this, this group of Israelites that came out of Egypt? They conquered the Egyptians, the world power at the time. Everybody, there was a spirit of jealousy upon every other people looking when you looked at the children of Israel. I want a God on my side. I want to have a number that big. And, and, and who, who do these people think that they are? Have, don't you know, we've been in this land for a number of years. And then they're coming in. They've only been here for 40 years. And they're nomadic. And they're doing all these things. So there was this spirit of jealousy. And so uh, that's what I believe many of the kingdoms and kings at the time probably would have thought. And would, would have heard. So, doing this, knowing this, he wants to conquer the Israelites, he wants to, to, to fight them, so then he goes and calls on this man named Balaam. So let's talk about this man named Balaam. Um, he is called a prophet in the scripture, and that he was, he was a prophet. Let me just get a, a couple of things out of the way. In our Torah portion here, Balaam is going to have conversations with God, with the Almighty God, the God of Israel, yod heh vav heh God, is going to speak to Balaam. Balaam's going to speak to them. There will be a conversation be- between those two. And in our portion, Balaam will go and he will proclaim four blessings upon the children of Israel, much to the chagrin of Balak, who's hiring him to curse the Israelites. Instead, as the story goes, as we'll, I'll describe, is that the, he instead, the, the curses that Balaam was intending to speak and get paid for, was uh, transformed into a blessing upon the children of Israel. And we have those blessings recorded. And that we have a great lesson that can be learned from this, is that God can even can transform the, the blessing, what intended to be curses, He can transform to be a blessing upon His people. That's a great uh, uh, lesson that can be learned from that. But let me just get something out of the way. This Balaam here was not a good dude. He might have conversed with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He might have proclaimed blessings upon the children of Israel. But this guy was a prophet for profit. He was in it for the money. That's all he was in for. He, he would kind of he kind of play the field when it comes. He believed in other gods and he did other things. And the scripture is very clear in other parts of scripture that he was. And then he gave counsel to Balak. That was actually the thing that really did cause harm to the children of Israel. And God never calls Balaam his prophet ever. He is not a prophet of Yod Hey Vav Hey. He is called a prophet. However, let me just take a little bit of a sidebar and describe really truly what a prophet is. Many people, when we say the word prophet, we might think, oh, this is somebody who uh, proclaims prophecies and predicts the future. Or proclaims things that will happen in the future. And that's really, in our modern day, when you hear the word prophet, that's what you think that it is. Biblically, that's not what a prophet does. A prophet is one who speaks the word of God. 
That's what he does. The word is given to him, bestowed upon him by God, and then he speaks the word of God. That word can be any variety of things. Those words can be a blessing upon people. Those words could be a curse upon others. It could be a word of warning. Whenever a prophet was sent to a king, he said he warned the king of this is going to happen. You need to do this. You need to proclaim this. And when you're talking about a spirit of prophecy, what you're talking about is somebody who speaks the word of God. That's what Moses did. That's what even even Joseph did when he when, when he was before the king of uh, before Pharaoh in Egypt and he gave the warning and he interpreted dreams and, and, and that kind of thing and, and you when you proclaim the word of God that's what the office of a prophet does. When we're talking about the fivefold ministry, it's one of the offices of ministry when it comes to we have teachers and evangelists and apostles and pastors. We also have prophets. And what they do is they proclaim the word of God. God gives them a word, a word to say, a word of encouragement, a word of warning. Sometimes it's sometimes it is something that projects into the future that says, hey, this is going to happen on your current path. The Lord has told me to tell you this is going to happen if you do this. And so it sounds like he's, he's a diviner and speaks into the future. Not necessarily. They just give the word of the Lord. And it's a gift. It's a spiritual gift that God gives to people if they are a prophet. God gives these gifts to, to, to everyone. And, and even, even people who are not believers, even though people that are not, who are not followers of God by, by profession, by they say that they are a Christian or a, or a Jew or a believer, all of these things, God still, there's still such thing in the world as spiritual gifts that God gives to people. It's now what you do with that gift that determines who you are and who you believe in and what you do with that gift. Balaam had the gift of prophecy. He was able to to hear the word of the Lord and then speak it. But this guy apparently figured out probably a long time ago, hey, you know what? I have this great gift that God has given me and I can talk to God and I can I, I can and then people are willing to give me money for doing the work and proclaiming the word of the Lord. So then later on, and as we can tell through the story, this guy was motivated by money and that he's like, he figured this out. This is how we're going to do. You could relate this to. Perhaps a modern day, uh, I'll just say this, a televangelist or somebody in, in, in some sort of faith that it's like he figured out some of these guys, I believe some of them hear from the Lord and some of them do minister to the people. And so I'm not going to diminish, I'm not going to speak against anybody who's proclaimed to be a servant of God throughout the years. But there's sometimes you get that sense, you get that feeling that you see one of these guys and they're just in it for the money. Whether they have the, the private jets and the Rolexes and the Armani suits and they come and they show up, they, they show up at the church and they speak the word of God and then they get paid and then they go and go to another place and they get paid there to do the same thing and they just are racking in the money and they figure out, hey, I'm going to do this. I'm going to, I, I proclaim to be a man of God. I give the word of God, but I can get paid while doing this. And now it becomes a question in their hearts and in their minds. Are they doing it because they're serving the Lord or are they doing it for the money? Balaam, here we have an example. This is a guy who does it for the money. As our story goes, what happens is Balak sends, uh, sends men, sends messengers to come and get Balaam. Balaam, we want to hire you to curse the children of Israel. You are a prophet. You speak to God. You do all these things. You People who you have cursed have ended up cursed. So we want to hire you to curse the children of Israel. And so he 
receives the messengers, he has them stay, and he says, hey, let me, uh, let me go check with God on, on this and, 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 and see what he has to say about this. And God has a conversation with Balaam here, paraphrasing chapter 22 of the book of Numbers. And he says, uh, hey, who, who are these people that are with you? And he says, oh, these are the messengers from Balak, the son of Zippor, and he, they've hired me to, to do this. God speaks to Balaam and he says, you shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people, for they are blessed. That's verse 12 of chapter 22. And then he goes, Balaam goes, rises in the morning, goes and tells the princes of Balak, and he says, go back to your land, the Lord has refused for me to give permission to go with you. So they go on their way. That's not all that God said to Balaam. Balaam said, or God said to Balaam, you are to not curse these people. They are blessed, you are not to not curse them. He goes back to the messengers, and he, instead of saying, hey, look guys, I'm not going to be able to curse these people for you, so don't even bother coming back. He doesn't say that. He says, oh, can't go with you. God said I can't go with you. Sends them on their way. Knowing the economics and the situation at the time, whatever, it's all like, hey, let's see if they come back with a better counter offer, which is exactly what they did. Balak sends more people. He sends men, princes who are, who are more honorable than even just the messengers he sent the first time. And they come and they say, Balaam, here, please come and curse these people for you. And Balaam realizes this situation is working out great. I'm now in, bestowed upon the honor of with being an, having an audience of these even more honorable princes of this kingdom. Balaam speaks to the servants of Balak, and and this is now verse 18. He says, Though Balak were to give me a house full of silver and gold, I could not go beyond the word of the Lord my God to do less or more. Now therefore, please, if you stay here the night, I may know what the Lord may say to me. Okay. So he's like, okay, now I'm talking to more honorable people and we're doing this. It's all like, Balak could give me a house full of silver and gold. Wink, wink. Maybe he could pay me this, maybe then. Instead of also instead of just sending them on their way and back, he says, ah, stay, ah, stay a night. Let me think about this more. Let me see if I can milk this a little bit longer. I'm in the presence of all these honorable men and these messengers. Let's uh, just go ahead and stay and see what the Lord has to say then. God speaks to Balaam again that night. And he says, if the men come to you, Rise and go with them, but only the word which I speak to you is what you shall do. So Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and went with the princes of Moab. Balaam was looking for his inn. He's looking for a loophole. Anything what I can say to God. You can picture him going before God that night and saying, it's all like, oh, the, the men are back. Is there, is there any way that I can go with them? Any way that I can, I can do this? Because this is what they do. They brought money. There was a fee that they had brought that they're going to give to him if he comes and does this job. And the guy's in it for the money. So he would love to be able to do this for the people. Motivated by money, motivated by honor and power and prestige. And that's all that he wanted. And he's just looking for a loophole. And God says, he's all like, you can go with them, but you are only going to say what I want you to say. You are not going to be able to curse them. And so, again, so, so Balaam maybe is like, okay, maybe on the journey, maybe I can figure this out. Maybe after I get there, I can, I can figure out what I can actually say. So it's like, oh, I'll go with them. So he's looking for the loopholes on how he can still get paid to do this job. Now, starting at verse 22, this is where we have the famous story about Balaam and his donkey and an angel of the Lord that appears. And so whenever you hear the name Balaam, if you've heard the story or heard of this man, the first thing you probably think of is, oh, that's the guy with the talking donkey. 
And in our story, that's what happens here. Paraphrasing, he they on the journey to go meet with Balak. Balaam's riding his donkey, and an angel appears in the in the way, in the path. The donkey sees it, but Balaam does not. And then the the donkey seeing this, he wanders off into the field to avoid this angel standing in the road. Now, servants are with him. The princes of Moab are with him. And so this man who they're hiring, who's going to come and curse the children of Israel, he's on this donkey, and this donkey's all wavering off into the wilderness, all wandering around. I'm sure the princes of Moab, honorable men, were looking. It's like, who is this guy? What's this guy supposed to do? He can't even control his donkey to stay on the road. He's wandering and doing these things. This would have been embarrassing for Balaam. Because he's all about the honor, he's all about the prestige, appearances, money, all of these things. And so then he can't even control this donkey. So he whips the donkey and gets it back on on the path. So then they're walking along the path, and the path narrows, and there's a wall on one side. The angel appears again, the donkey sees it. The donkey then moves to the side and crushes Balaam's foot against the wall, and he whips it again. I mean, so now it's even more embarrassing. Now he's injured, and so as he appears, he's going to be limping, or he's going to appear less than honorable before the king and before all these people. And then again, the angel appears, the donkey again, and then the donkey can't go anywhere, and the donkey just stops and just sits down in the middle of the path. Doesn't go any further. All the servants, all the princes of Moab are figuring out what in the world is going on. And Balaam, he strikes this donkey, strikes it three times in total. And the Lord, this very interesting conversation, the Lord opens the donkey's mouth and donkey speaks and it just says, hey, why'd you whip me? Balaam talks back to the donkey and he says, well, I wish I had a sword or I would have killed you. And then at that point, that's when the angel is revealed to Balaam that it's like that there was an angel in the road that the donkey saw, but he didn't. So he falls on his face and there's another conversation between Balaam and the Lord and says, I didn't, he didn't know that this was an angel and all these things. And it's repeated again to him. And he says, look, you are going to speak the word that I speak. And had I let you go, if the donkey had continued on, then I, God, would have killed you, Balaam. This is a conversation. This would have been very humbling for Balaam to have this conversation. This is supposed to be a prophet of God. This is supposed to be an honorable man. But he couldn't see the angel of the Lord. Instead, his donkey did. His donkey got the best best of him in that situation. People always do talk. It is funny that the donkey starts talking and then he just immediately started talking back to his donkey as if that wasn't a strange thing. Of course, uh, I've actually hypothesized that if Balaam truly was this man who was a diviner and who did all of these various things, talking to animals might not have been the weirdest thing the guy's ever done. So we might look at that and say this is kind of ridiculous, uh, except for him, that might have been actually commonplace. That wouldn't be wouldn't have been too abnormal. But again, the Lord is using him in a certain way. He's teaching a lesson, and that's what we're to draw out of all of these things. Is that what is the lesson for us to learn? Have we ever been in a position before where there was something that it's like we got two choices? We got one, we can follow God, and it's the less enjoyable aspect. We maybe sit down, we don't we don't really do anything, and we just continue with our worship of God and prayer of God. And then we have option B that is okay. I'm going to go out, I'm going to make a bunch of money, and I'm going to do this, but it might not be exactly what God wants me to do. And we have to sit there and weigh this option and say, what are we going to choose to do? Are we going to follow after the lust of our eyes, honor, fame, fortune? Are we going to follow that and choose that over what God has told us to do? This is the lesson that we have. This is why we have this story. Here in the middle of our Torah, while we've been talking about the children of Israel, we're now talking about these particular men.
Now, I, now, one confession. I don't know where these, where we got this story. I don't know if the Lord bestowed upon Moses to explain all of these things that happened, if there was somebody else that came and informed Moses, who was the author of the Torah, that all of these things had happened, and so then Moses thought it fit to put it in our, in our Torah and in these, uh, in these books of the law. I don't know. We don't know where this story is. But as always, when we read these things, what is the principle? What is the thing that we can draw out of it that we can learn from? We have Balaam here, and, and this. In, well, the other thing I want to say is this. This whole interaction, this three times that he struck the donkey, and these three things that happened to Balaam on this journey with this donkey. Sometimes the Lord will put warning signs along the way that might inform you that maybe you're not on the right path. Maybe you're not doing what God really wants you to do. It's almost as if sometimes you might have been on your way to somewhere, that you were going to go somewhere, and you get a flat tire, and you're delayed, and maybe you're late, or maybe something happens to where you can't go to the place where you were intending to go now. Your, your car breaks down, and suddenly you can't go. Sometimes the Lord uses that to explain to you and show you, look, I don't want you to go there. You're not supposed to be there, and God will make it make a way so you do not go. And so we have these warnings here. Some, it, Balaam's donkey just starts wandering off into the field. If he was thinking about it, he's like, hey, is the, is the Lord causing this to happen? He could have asked that question, but he didn't. Or the, his foot gets crushed. He's injured. They, this, he, they might not have been too far along the journey. If he, his foot now hurts, it's going to be hurt. It's going to be broken. It's going to be hurt for this entire journey, this entire thing. What if he could just turn around and go back home and just take care of his broken foot? But he didn't do that either. These are sometimes warning signs that God puts along the way to teach you whether you're on the right path or not. Sometimes he might just show something or cause you to have to deviate, go around it. Maybe there's construction on the road and you can't go through where you're going to go. Are you going to press on or are you going to take it as a warning and turn around and go back home? Sometimes something bad happens and you actually get hurt. Maybe something damage comes to your person or your property, and that's again the Lord trying to teach you something. Then sometimes maybe he just delays so you can't even go any further, where the donkey just sat down, didn't move any further, and the car just completely breaks down on the side of the road, and you're not driving another mile until something drastic happens. Sometimes the Lord uses those things and progresses them in that way to teach you if you're on the right path or not. When it rains, it pours. Sometimes you might look and say, man, well, Lord, why is this happening? Well, it's happening so that you stop and turn your attention back to the Lord and ask the Lord that question. So another thing that we can learn from this interaction that he has here. So Balaam arrives, meets with Balak, and Balak called, called for him, and then Balaam has come, and he's all like, hey, why didn't you come the first time? And Balaam's like, well, I'm here now. And they, they go, they have a feast, and they sacrifice all these oxen and sheep, and they form a covenant here, Balak and, and Balaam. And this is the way that this progresses on. What happens is Balak takes Balaam to these high places, three separate high places with altars and with you know temples to other gods. And what Balak is looking to do is this. He's trying to invoke the power of all these other gods to curse Israel. Unfortunately for Balak, 
The God of Israel is the almighty creator of heaven and earth, who's the king of kings, lord of lords, and he's above all of these other gods. The other gods have no power to combat against the king, or against the God of Israel. That's what he doesn't know. But what he does is he takes Balaam here, this prophet, and he's going to make all of these sacrifices and take him to these high places. And then at, then at this point, Balaam is going to proclaim this curse upon the children of Israel. Again, it's a, it's a spiritual warfare that's going on here that Balak is wanting to do. But as Balaam's mouth opens and gets ready to speak, instead what we hear and what God does, and our scripture actually says in other parts of scripture, that God changes the curse of Balaam to a blessing. Balaam wants to get paid, but God, with his power, if he's got the power to make a donkey speak, he's got the power to make Balaam speak whatever he wants. And that's exactly what he does. Beginning here at verse 7, this is the first of the four blessings or oracles that Balaam proclaims upon the children of Israel. And he took up his oracle and said this, Balak, the king of Moab, has brought me here from Aram, from the mountains of the east. Come, curse Jacob for me, and come, denounce Israel. How shall I curse whom God has not cursed? And how shall I denounce whom the Lord has not denounced? From the top of the rocks I see him, and from the hills I behold him. There, a people dwelling alone, not reckoning itself among the nations who can count the dust of Jacob or number one fourth of Israel let me die the death of the righteous and let my end be like his Balak said to Balaam and he says what have you done to me I took you to curse my enemies and look you have blessed them bountifully and he said must I not take heed and speak what the Lord has put in my mouth this is what we're, the situation going on here. Again, it sounds like Balaam is, is speaking on behalf of God and saying, it's like, I cannot speak except what, the, what God has bestowed upon me to, to speak. However, we know, motivation-wise, Balaam was probably trying to curse Israel. But God changed the words that came out of his mouth. He was trying to, he wanted to do all these things and get paid. The other thing too is in the language here, Balaam might be, hey, you know, if you, I'll say it this way, but if you up your price, if you pay me more money, maybe then I will all bless him. This dynamic could have been going on as well because what happens is Balak takes Balaam to another place. They have another feast. They have more sacrifices. These were probably great parties that they were having up on top of these hills. Now the, the, the time for the, the star of the show, Balaam, to come and proclaim a curse upon Israel. And so then he's like, well, hey, maybe I'll melt this one more time. If I don't, if I don't bless him, maybe I'll go. We'll have to throw another party tomorrow. This is another dynamic that could have been going on. Again, this is, these are theories of, of mine. So what happens here? They go to another place. Exactly that happens. Balak then says, we'll come. We'll go to this, this other place here. The field of Zophim is at the top of Pisgah. This is another god. This is another thing. The first place was the god in the temple of Baal. This one is the is the field of Zophim, and the, all of these places, I believe, had meaning to uh, the, the gods that they worshipped at these places. All the, they believed had certain kinds of powers and, and and had rule and dominion over certain things, and so they're trying to invoke all of these powers of the world, power these spiritual powers, to curse Israel. But again. The power of God, the power that who, who has spoken to Balaam and has changed the power, his voice to speak blessings instead of curses. Instead, that is what comes out and that's what speaks. The second oracle reads like this. 
uh, here, verse 18 of uh, chapter 23. Rise up, Balak, and hear, listen to me, son of Zippor. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. He has said, and will he not do? Or has he spoken, and will he not make it good? Behold, I have received a command to bless. He has blessed, and I cannot reverse it. He has not observed iniquity in Jacob, nor has he seen wickedness in Israel. The Lord his God is with him, and the shout of a king is among them. He brings them out of Egypt. He has strength like a wild ox, and there is no sorcery against Jacob, nor any divination against Israel. It is now it now must be said of Jacob and of Israel, Oh, what God has done! Look, a people rises like a lioness, and lifts itself up like a lion. It shall not lie down until it devours its prey and drinks the blood of the slain. Again, Balak goes back to Balaam and he says, he says, just stop talking. He says, neither curse them nor bless them. If you're going to say, don't say anything. If you, if you can't curse them, well, at least don't bless them. And so that's the conversation that happens. And Balaam's probably like, I I told you this is what it's going to happen. These blessings are very powerful. And one of the things that we learn from this is that even through the blessing and the positive words of even a sinner, even somebody who's not a believer, even one who's not a part of a congregation or of Israel, that still the power of a blessing goes beyond what some, who somebody is and what they truly believe. I believe God can use the testimony of sinners to minister to the people. Minister to the brethren. And then one of the things that I like to teach out of this as well, and, and that I believe is this, is that a message that comes from God is exactly that from God. That message is anointed. That message is powerful. The vessel that's carrying it could be broken, could be unclean, could be, uh, could, could be bad in some way, some form or fashion. It could be cracked, could be broken, all of these things, but the message is still anointed. In the same thing that if you ever heard or read a book that maybe encouraged you in your faith in your walk, if you if you ever heard a message from a pastor, those of us in the messianic movement, we've come out of the church and we don't really go back and we don't listen to other church pastors and teachings from from modern day Christianity as much anymore. But there might have been a message that came from there that was encouraging, that was a blessing to you. And that person, that pastor, sometimes this happens too, sometimes that pastor falls away from the faith. Sometimes that pastor commits a great sin and their ministry is taken from them by the Lord. Does that change the fact that the words they spoke at one point in time ministered to a great number of brethren, maybe yourself included? Of course not. It doesn't change that. It doesn't go back and that it's all like, you know, that, that quote, that phrase, that meant something to me. That encouraged me in my walk. Well, the, my counsel to you is the message is anointed, but the messenger was not. Or the messenger was anointed at a time, but that anointing can be taken from them. In the same way that a great earthen vessel can be wonderful for carrying water, if something makes it unclean, that vessel has to be broken. That doesn't change the fact that sometimes that water was good and and gave water to someone who was thirsty, or that that water could then go into another vessel. That's the way this kind of works. And so that's the one thing I always like pointing out is that even the testimony of a sinner, even somebody who has fallen away from the faith, does not change the fact that the message that they carry can minister to the people. 
If there's a book that has been written, or, and even think about it this way. What about after somebody dies? Somebody gave a word, gave a message, and then it's a, it, they, they died. Their word is still good if it carries on through a book or through a recording or a message. And the message was anointed, even though the vessel's no longer here. Or the vessel, if it has sinned and has fallen away from the faith, that doesn't change the fact that the message was good and it was from God at the time. So, one of the things I want to encourage people is that just because we get let down by people sometimes, we get let down by a pastor or a teacher because they sin, because they uh, failed or they fell in some way, that de- don't then go back and, and, and don't rip out every book, uh, every page of every book that they ever wrote and don't, don't throw away all the teachings because all of the words, if they were, did come from God, then you can still be encouraged and that word is still good because God has that power to even speak through sinners and, and uh, bad people. They speak through them and minister to the people and we can learn from that. So that's another thing, a conclusion of what we have with this man named Balaam. Again, it continues on and it says there's, there's more blessings that come here. I, I do want to read these blessings. They're very encouraging to me because that's really the, the goodness of this message here. To hear these things and these blessings that are put upon the children of Israel. Even if they come from the enemies of Israel. The third uh, blessing reads as this, verse 3 of chapter 24. The utterance of Balaam, the son of uh, Beor. The utterance of the man whose eyes are open. The utterance of him who hears the words of God and who sees the vision of the Almighty, who falls down with eyes wide open. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, your dwellings, O Israel, like valleys that stretch out, like gardens by the riverside, like aloes planted by the Lord, like cedars beside the waters. He shall pour water from his buckets, and he, his seed shall be as many waters." His king shall be higher than Agog, and his kingdom shall be exalted. God brings him out of Egypt. His strength is like a wild ox. He shall consume the nations, his enemies. He shall break their bones and pierce them with his arrows. He bows down. He lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Blessed is he who blesses you, and cursed is he who curses you. Very powerful. That blessing right there where it says, How lovely are your tents, O Jacob, how your dwellings, O Israel. That is the Matovu song, the Matovu blessing that is done in many congregations and synagogues throughout the world that is repeated and sung many times over as an incredible blessing upon Jacob and Israel. Yet originally those words came out of the mouth of a prophet for hire and an enemy of Israel. It's amazing. Again, like I said, the Lord can transform these words of even a sinner into being a great blessing. At this point, Balak is kind of done with Balaam. He wants to send him on his way and do this and send him away without getting paid. And Balak, then Balaam says back to him, he's all like, you can give me a house full of silver and gold. And I said, I couldn't go beyond the word of the Lord. Again, like I said, Balaam could be just swindling his whole, this entire deal here, trying to get more out of him. And again, there's another blessing that comes uh, from Balaam upon uh, the children of Israel. A fourth one that reads as this, verse 15 of chapter 24. The utterance of Balaam, the son of Beor. The utterance of a man whose eyes are open. The utterance of him who hears the words of God and has the knowledge of the Most High. Who sees the vision of the Almighty. Who falls down with eyes wide open. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. 
And Edom shall be a possession. Seir also his enemies shall be a possession. While Israel does valiantly out of Jacob, one shall have dominion and destroy the remains of the city. This is a prophecy that's now been spoken into existence. Moab is going to be destroyed by Israel. There's nothing that you can do beyond this. And, and, and after that, you, if Balak was taking this counsel, if Balak was hearing these words, then maybe he should have found another way. Found another way. Instead of being against these people, he should, have, he should have then figured out how to work with them or be before them. Again, there's this jealousy that's upon, uh, that's upon Israel from these other kings, wishing they could have what Israel had. What comes here now, and, and our portion uh, still continues on through the start of chapter 25, but I'm really going to focus more on that next week when we have the story of Phineas. What happens here is the Israelites are dwelling in this place, and then Balak, the king, they send the women of Moab to go down into the camp and to then intermarry and mingle with the Israelites and to play the harlot and to, to uh, basically cause Israel to fall away from God and to do what is contrary to God and His commandment. And if you just read our Torah portion here, you might just look and it just says uh, at the end of uh, chapter 24, Balaam rose, departed from his place. Then in chapter 25, then all of these things happen. Well, if we read other parts of Scripture where Balaam shows up and talks about in uh, Numbers 31, talking about Balaam, what happened here is this. Balaam still figured out a way to get paid. He couldn't prophesy a curse upon Israel, but he could give counsel to Balak and say, hey, try this. And I think he still walked away probably handsomely with a chunk of change for giving the counsel of, look, I can't curse them, you can't curse them, these other gods can't curse them, but you can make them curse themselves. Cause them to go and be distracted. Send your women in there and tell them to worship and bow down to other gods. And you can cause the children of Israel to curse themselves. Then that's the way spiritually that you can conquer them. Well, that counsel from Balaam, like I said, not a good, great guy. In Numbers chapter 31, the children of Israel go ahead and take care of Balaam. Balaam dies at the hand of the sword of Israel when they, all of this is all said and done. So he might have gotten paid, but he didn't get to enjoy it for very long. But this counsel and this teaching that came from Balaam, this, is the, this was the tactic that was used against Israel because God, who has blessed his people, nobody can come against them. However, they can choose to have God's favor be removed from them. They can choose to break the covenant. They can make that mistake. And that's what they, that's what they do. It's the thing also in other parts of Scripture, even into the New Testament, it talks about the teaching of Balaam that is something to be avoided. It's not the prophecy of Balaam that maybe had any, any problem there. He was never able to curse, curse the Israelites. However, his counsel and his teaching is something that is, is caused the children of Israel to walk away from the faith. The counsel is to turn away from faith, to, to go after other idols and these things. And that is something that has to be greatly avoided to know and understand in our teaching. That's what that kind of teaching looks like. If somebody ever comes along and says and tells you to turn away from the words of God, what God has said, that person is a false prophet. That's in Deuteronomy, which we'll be teaching in a couple of weeks. That it's like the... the, the uh, Stipulation for who a false prophet is, is one, he could do all kinds of signs and wonders. But if he teaches that you turn away from the word which God has given to you, that man is a false prophet. By those words alone, Balaam was a false 
prophet because that's what he taught and that's what he did. Though he may have been able to bless somebody and blessings come abound, come abound upon them or curse somebody and curses come and he can do all these signs and wonders, he has taught and his teaching that goes on is one that causes one to turn away from the faith. If there is anybody, even in this modern day, who tells you to go contrary to what God has commanded you to do by keeping His commandments, by studying them, by learning from them, to live by them, and somebody says, no, you don't have to do those things anymore. You don't have to worry about that. You can unhitch yourself from the Old Testament and you can just, you know, just all, this is all you need. By the Word of God... In these pages, that person is a false prophet and that is not a word from God. If they're telling you to steer away from that. If you do follow that counsel, you can curse yourself. You'll end up dead along the road. You're not going to get the promises and the blessings of going into the promised land if you follow that line of teaching. Very simple. Who is a prophet? Who is a false prophet? God has the power to use even false prophets to bless people. But you're not to learn from them. They're not to be your teacher. There's other offices of the fivefold ministry that are meant to be teachers of God as opposed to prophets of God. In all of these things. These are all spiritual gifts that God gives to us that we have to learn to be discerning to follow after what is the word of God. Who is this teacher? Who is this dreamer of dreams? Who is this prophet that performs miracles? And whether we are going to follow that or if we're going to continue to do what the Lord has said to us. Amen? Heavenly Father, we come before you on this Sabbath day. We thank you for the teaching of our Torah portion this week. And we thank you, Lord, for the testimonies of Balaam and Balak, Lord. Even though these were enemies of Israel, they were not a part of Israel. They intended harm for Israel, Lord. We have the record of who they were, what they did. And Father, may we learn from this. May we learn to recognize false prophets in our midst. If someone is in our midst or is motivated by money and fame and fortune, Lord, let us recognize them for who they are. Father, when there's enemies who will not yield who will not uh, stand or stand for peace and desire to just dwell with one, another, with one another, Lord. May we recognize them, Lord, knowing who truly are our enemies. We thank you for their testimonies, Lord. We thank you for the instruction that we can learn from them. That even in anybody negative, even in any um, bad people, individuals that we read in our scripture, may we learn from their actions, learn from their testimony so that we do not make those same mistakes, yet can also recognize those in our midst who are modern day false prophets and Balaams and Korahs in our midst, Lord. We thank you for all your teaching and your instruction. As we continue through our Torah cycle, Father, I pray that you continue to make it alive and powerful and may it minister to us. Whatever situation we find ourselves in, Lord, in our day-to-day lives, may the Torah portion of each week speak to us and encourage us to continue to walk in our most holy faith before you, keeping your commandments, your word, and continuing to proclaim a faith in the name of Yeshua the Messiah, Yeshua of Nazareth, our Savior, your Son. So, Father, we love you, we bless you, and thank you on the Sabbath day for all of these things. In Yeshua's name, Amen. And now the blessing after the Torah. Baruch atah Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, asher natalanu Torah temet, v'chayalam netah betocheinu, Baruch atah Adonai, nonten ha-Torah, Amen. Blessed are you, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who has given us the Torah of truth and has planted everlasting life in our midst. Blessed are you, O Lord, giver of the Torah. Amen. Shabbat Shalom. 
If you would, turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians um, chapter 1, um, this being the portion about Balak. Uh, I should share with you in a personal way that last week's portion, Hukat and Balak, has many times taught us a double portion, and those are my bar mitzvah portions. So this is coming these teachings coming on the anniversary of my existence here in the world. And so they've always been uh, special to me. And uh, in terms of my faith and destiny that I have in the Lord. And these New Testament passages last week on John chapter 3 and this week on John, um, 1 Corinthians 1 have been very profound uh, in my spiritual life um, in teaching and instructing me. If you would, turn now to in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 20. And the reason why they've selected this passage to go along with the teaching of Balak is, of course, the teaching of Balaam. Uh, Balaam was sought out by Balak to come to curse the children of Israel. And by all counts, he was a holy man. He was a prophet of the living God. And God has raised up prophets in other nations and other places, and um, apparently Balaam was one of them. However, uh, Balaam is going to make a terrible mistake. He's going to be foolish in his uh, manner of accepting money and trying to participate with Balak in the cursing of the children of Israel. Uh, so the reason our portion is selected is because of this opening question. That's here in verse 20 where it says, where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through uh, wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased that through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach the Messiah crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Messiah, the power of God and the wisdom of God, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Before I go further into the remaining part of this passage, uh, this is essentially the question that Paul has raised. Just like when we go to the portion on Balaam and we ask ourselves the question, is he a real prophet? Does he really have the ability to do the things that Balak hired him to do when he set up the altars and went up to prophesy? What, what was really going on? Did he really have that skill? Did he understand those things of God? Was he besieging God with the belief that that would really happen? Uh, and the questions that we pose there about Balaam and how in the world did he operate and, and what was right and what was wrong about his life, those are the same kinds of questions that we ask throughout the world um, in terms of our faith as compared to all the other things going on in the world. Do we believe in the right and correct things? And by the way, it's healthy for us to step back every once in a while and ask that question and to again properly conclude based on the evidence that yes, that God has manifested himself, that he's shown forth to speak the truth, 
that we have seen the evidence of him and that we conclude that rightfully so, that we should believe in God, trust what God says. He has proved himself many times over. So that gets to the question of, well, who's really wise? The wise person is the one who would accept the evidence, weigh the evidence, and come up with the proper judgment. Paul's insinuating here that the world is full of people who claim to be wise, who claim to be using the evidence, but they don't do it properly, and they come up with erroneous conclusions. Uh, He makes mention of, and I'm sure you've heard this phrase before, the Jews seek signs, uh, the Gentiles or Greeks seek wisdom. Um, for in the biblical history, we have many uh, evidences that the people of God have sought out signs from God to indicate that God has put them on this particular path or that this is the things the Lord is doing. I want to take you back to briefly when, when Moses was at the burning bush, And he asked the Lord, well, you send me back to Egypt, and I speak to the sons of Israel, why will they believe me? In other words, Moses is asking, why would the children of Israel believe anything I have to say? And God says, because I will give you signs, uh, works of God that only God can do, and you'll be the one that will bring them forth to them. And if you recall from that exchange, Moses was given three specific signs. One was his staff. He could cast his staff down and it would become a serpent. He could reach down, pick up the serpent, and it would become his staff again. Uh, The second one is that he could take water and turn it into blood. The third was that he could put his hand in his cloak. It would come out, it would be leprous. You know, put his hand back in his cloak, come out clean, instant healing. So turning water into blood, instant healing, and the sign of his staff were signs that were given by God to Moses specifically to help the children of Israel to believe that God had in fact sent him and that what he did was by the power and authority of God. The children of Israel did receive those signs. They did believe what Moses was doing and they participated with him in the exodus out of Egypt. Interestingly enough, Yeshua came to us, did exactly the same signs. He turned water into wine. Wine, blood, means the same thing. He did the instant healing of the son that was in Capernaum while he's standing in Cana, uh, which is recorded for us very clearly. And when he was lifted up on the cross, it was like Moses' staff being lifted in the wilderness, and we saw the I am God. And that's when the I am God's name was given when the staff was turned into a sign for Moses. So what's compelling or interesting about this is while it says that Jews seek signs, yes, they seek signs, but they don't necessarily believe them. They don't necessarily believe all the signs that God gives to us. We who are spiritual, we look for signs. We look for the evidences that are a little bit like if you were traveling down the road. And when I'm traveling down the road, I like to see signs along the road, you know, so many miles to the next town, mileage signs. I like to see advertisement signs, you know, oh, there's this business in the town that is coming up. Again, an evidence that I'm on the path going to that. I like to receive from the Lord. 
signs from him that will affirm and confirm that the path that I'm on is the path I'm supposed to be going on. Uh, I'll just share it, just a very personal uh, story for a moment. When I began Lionel Lamb Ministries, I had left my aerospace career, and this was a serious major decision in my life that was going to impact my family and my children dramatically. I had an opportunity in that first year that we started the ministry to travel to Israel. And when I went to the Kotel for the very first time in Jerusalem, of course, I had the question, you know, before the Lord, have you really called me? Am I really doing what you want me to do? Uh, am I in your will? And I remember going to the Kotel and uh, him um, literally feeling the presence of God standing right at my left side, putting his hand on my shoulder and saying that I was doing good and to keep going. Um, can't go and verify that with other people, uh, but for me, that was huge. That was extremely important that I received that sign to, to let me know where I'm at and what is happening. What is, uh, am I on track with what God is wanting to do? The other expression here is the Gentiles seek wisdom. And by the way, God, let me go ahead and I, I love our brother Brad Scott. He has this phrase that he used every once in a while where he asks everybody to agree with him, do you think God is smarter than all of us? And the obvious answer is yes, God is definitely smarter than all of us. And Paul is making the point here that the foolishness of God is still smarter than the smartest of mankind. That his ways are exceedingly above our ways. His understanding and grasp of things exceeds that. In fact, you could say it's infinite that his understanding of things. Uh, that is crucial for us if you're going to um, spiritually mature in the faith. If you know that he understands and has the knowledge of all things, then you can be confident in him that he's also making the best judgments possible for you and your life. Um, and as you, many of you know, uh, in the last um, several months, late last year, I lost my wife, um, Lynn. She was only 60 years old. Uh, if you'd have sat down and asked me about that, did I think that was a, a good thing to happen? Did I think that was a good idea for eternity and for the kingdom of God? I would have said, no, that's not a good idea. That's, that's wrong. I, I don't want that to happen. Yet God did it. And there's no doubt in my mind that was part of his perfect will. And so it's the confidence in God that holds you together and the, the good days and the not so good days. The joys of this life that God gives us and when there is darkness and sadness. And yet God has proven himself to be faithful to me in the midst of all of that going on. And as he says, that's part of what strengthens us. I'll tell you, I've learned a lot about 
what people go through when it comes to grieving. I have a completely different understanding of that than I had before. And I have a lot more appreciation for those who have to endure loss and to understand where their hearts are at. And out of the midst of that, I have a whole new understanding and and uh, dimension of the Messiah, of, of the Lord, because he promises to us that he binds up the brokenhearted. And I've prayed to God, and I said, God, please help me with that, because at the loss of my wife, my heart was broken, and I didn't know how to put it back together again. And uh, he has come in and has begun to put my heart back together again and so that I can move forward and live and continue to serve him. Now, there's no way to explain that. There's no logic uh, to that. Uh, yet, uh, in God it works. And it's the wise things of the Lord, um, which exceeds the wisdom of this world. I also take solace in that the Lord says that the death of his saints is precious in his eyes. And I think the Lord just wanted her up there with him. Didn't want to wait any longer. And I take great confidence in the Lord uh, for that as well. Those are some of the things that stand out to me about how God knows what he's doing smarter than we know what he's doing. And the idea that we would go around telling or suggesting to God that he should do certain things according to our plan, according to what we think is the right thing to do, tell you the truth, it's just utterly absurd. The Lord knows best. And the quicker we learn that, and the quicker we come to terms with that, the better off we'll be. Balak hired Balaam to come down and do some of the business of God, if you will, so that he could ultimately defeat what he perceived to be his enemy, which was the children of Israel. And he asked Balaam to come and render a curse, believing that a spiritual curse upon them would help to facilitate bringing harm to them. Well, as we all know, the Lord did not want to put harm on Israel. He wanted to bless Israel, and he basically put the curse that they wanted to put on them. He put it he transformed Balaam's words into an even more powerful blessing for Israel. Matovuv, how goodly are your tents, O Jacob. One of the most powerful blessings over spoken over Israel, uh, which is part of the liturgy that's used in a Torah service, comes from the blessing of Balaam while he was hired to speak a curse. And there is, uh, there is a certain truth to this, that when your enemy compliments you, it's an even more powerful compliment than when your friend compliments you. When your enemy has to admit to you that you've done well, it's even better than your friends patting you on the back, uh, because it's more profound. The contrast is much greater. It's, uh, there's no, you don't have to qualify the witness. The witness is already geared toward not saying that, and yet when he says it, it's, it has to be profound in that doing. Uh, Paul is now going to shift gears for a moment. He wants to talk about you and I in the midst of all of this. Instead of us trying to figure out how wise we are, 
uh, he takes note of the people that God has called. And in verse 26, he says, For consider your calling, brethren, that there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised, God has chosen things that are not, that he might nullify the things that are, that no man should boast before God. Um, I don't know how to say this to you other than to just gently say it to you. Take a look around your fellowship. Take a look at yourself. Not many wise amongst us, huh? Not many of the noble. Uh, God has actually gone through and um, chosen some of the, shall we say, the not-so-lovely people, the ugly people, not the beautiful people. Um, and he has chosen uh, those that the world would look down upon and despise. He's chosen us for the purpose to confound the wise, because he's not going to permit any man standing up against God and laying claim to his glory or inferring that he is equal to or better than God. By the way, this is the sin of the devil. The devil is the one who stood up and said, well, I'll make my throne higher than his throne. I'll be like the most high. Uh, that's the work of the devil. And when a man gets up and he does something that or thinks like in those terms, he's thinking like the devil. Well, we know all what's happening with the devil. He is going to lose big time out of this deal. And any man doing so will lose big time as well. So that none will boast before the Lord. Uh, but all of us will be gracious and recognizing the graciousness of God that has been given to us as well. I want to... Um, I want to just say a, a quick word to some of my newer... Uh, messianic brethren that have come into the movement. We have a, uh, there's a lot of people when they come in, uh, the pendulum has been swung over very hard, if you will, to the uh, the other way. And when they come into the Torah and the understanding and the commandments of the Torah, they swing the tent pendulum, and sometimes they swing the pendulum a little too far. They don't balance out, they just swing it way over to the other side. To where that, whereas they used to ignore the commandments, now they assert the commandments on everything and everybody. We have a, a phrase that we use for some of the folks like this. We call them Torah terrorists. Uh, they go around taking the commandments of the Lord and trying to lay them on top of everybody around them. And since they've just come to terms with some of the commandments, they want to go and challenge uh, other people for it. And any time that you go and do that, you're offending what James talked about. Who are you to judge one of your brethren? These commandments do not belong to you. They were given to you, but they belong to God. God is the one that spoke them from, the, from Mount Sinai. You didn't speak them from Mount Sinai. You're the, the one that doesn't hold everybody accountable to the commandments. The Lord holds people accountable to his commandments. And you're not even being asked by God to be consulted or counseled on how to render a judgment on anybody, including yourself. And there's a lot of times when they come new into the faith because of the new knowledge which puffs up, uh, they think 
that um, that they should do that, that they should help God in his kingdom. They should help the brethren uh, by sharing this new knowledge they have and the new stuff they've got. Uh, I want to remind you, and this is where we need to pay attention to what Paul's saying here. I want to remind you that um, you're not mighty, you're not noble, you're one of the ugly things of the world. You're here by the grace of God. You have no other credential for it. You have nothing to boast in before the Lord. So why in the world would you, like, speak up and try to draw attention to yourself as though there is some basis of why you should stand above others? You have no basis to do so. And in truth of fact, the wisdom of God is that we defer to God and we let God speak for us. Um, one of my favorite Proverbs, it says, There's no lack of sin in the multitude of words. And when you stand up and you start telling people a lot of different things, whether you realize it or not, you're exposing your sin. And probably the biggest one that stands out the most is your haughtiness and your pride. And I also would caution you that when you decide to become haughty and prideful in front of the Lord, that you're destined for a fall from however height you have put yourself on. That you don't have, you're, you're not the, the basis of yourself. You, you, your knowledge does not carry the day. Uh, this is a spiritual life, spiritual walk. It's not based on the knowledge of men or academics or degrees or your good looks or the fact that you sing well in the shower. None of that counts uh, for this. The only thing that counts is the mercy and grace of God. Now, this passage that is used for this po portion basically concludes with verse 31 in 1 Corinthians 1. But I want to extend it just a little bit this Sabbath and extend it to the opening words in chapter 2 as well. Paul's now going to recount his own effort in coming and sharing the faith uh, with the brethren. You know, we look up to Paul. He's wise, knowledgeable. He was a Torah scholar, things like that. But this is Paul's testimony about how he believed God used him um, in, in terms of teaching and sharing with us. Uh, chapter 2, verse 1, and it says, And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. Man, I wish I could get every teacher to read that verse for himself. we got a lot of teachers that they think it's superiority of speech and excellency of some sort of thing, that that's what carries the day in terms of sharing the faith. Wrong. Absolutely wrong. And Paul goes on to explain to us what does really work. What does carry the day? Verse 2, For I determined to know nothing among you except Yeshua the Messiah and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Essentially, Paul's saying, I was scared half out of my wits when I came to speak to you. You thought I was coming and, and had all of this excellent skill. I did not have this excellent skill. I came and what happened, what you saw, what you received, is in demonstration how the Spirit of God works through 
communicates through a teacher, a man, uh, a minister, to minister to the brethren, to edify all of the brethren. I, this was a profound passage to me early in my walk. Uh, it struck me that how can a man learn the ways of the Lord? And mind you, when I was a young man, I, I was looking at that and I said, Is, are there books we need to get? Well, obviously the Bible. But are there other books we need to get? Are, are there certain teachers that we should listen to? Certain teachers are, are well known and, and should we listen to them? Um, are, are there certain institutions? Is there a seminary? Is there a Bible college where we need to go? Well, the world is full of religious men, and they all have different definitions on that. And that's the reason why we have all those different things that we've got uh, running around. But God showed me, no, if you really want to learn the things of me, Monty, just come ask me. And let me speak through my voice and my spirit into your life and teach you and show you. Um, in particular... A couple of verses that struck out to me that speak directly to this is part of the testimony of King David. And if you'll go with me very briefly to Psalms 119. Psalms 119 is King David expressing his great love of the word of God. And in particular, two verses really struck me and penetrated my heart. And I saw... Something David had done in his relationship with God that I wanted in my life as well. In the 119th Psalm, at the 32nd verse, it says, I shall run the way of thy commandments, for thou wilt enlarge my heart. One of the things that I began to understand about growing spiritually is you have to have a heart to do it. It's not about knowledge. It's about where your heart is at. And if you have a heart to follow the Lord, things will happen correctly. You'll, you'll have the energy you need. You'll have the interest you need. Because if you're not interested in the subject, guess what? You're not going to learn it. But if you have the heart for it, it you know, you, that's, that's key to being able to learn the things of the Lord. You have to have a heart for the Lord uh, to do it. Now, David expresses there an agreement with the Lord. He says, Lord... I will run the way of your commandments. I will do the things you want me to do, but I need you to increase my heart for you. What a great prayer. What an incredible prayer. Lord, increase my heart. Give me the desire to want to serve you, to want to obey. I asked the Lord for that. King David asked for that. Remind you that King David is the man who has the testimony. This is the man who sought the very heart of God. What is God's heart toward you? That you would have a heart for him. So when you go and you ask the Lord, increase my heart, enlarge my heart to want to serve you. That's not, not, that's not based on knowledge. That's not based on on excellent words and the wisdom of men. That's on something completely different. And he prayed that and asked for that. Now look at the next verse, verse 33. 
Teach me, O Lord, the way of thy statutes, and I shall observe it to the end. The thing that struck me the most as I began as a young man to follow the Lord was, I don't want to be taught by other men because the world is full of the history of men who've made mistakes. Men are fundamentally flawed. And if I'm going to spiritually learn and learn correctly, I need to have God, who, by the way, is the impeccable teacher, I need to have God teach me, not men. And so this also is part of the heart of God. What does God's heart have toward us? He wishes that we would call out to him so he could teach us. Well, to do that, we have to have the heart, and then we have to listen to what he has to say. Now, David made two agreements. He said, if you'll increase my heart, enlarge my heart, give me the heart, the desire to do it, I'll run the way of your commandments. And then he says here, if you'll teach me, Lord, I shall observe him to the end. And that would be to the end of his life. He would forever as long as he's able to do so, keep the commandments of the Lord even to the end of his life. I'm, I'm here to tell you something, brethren. The Lord cannot turn down that prayer. That petition will be well received by him. Because that's where his heart is at for you and I. I stand today testifying to you that as a young man, I prayed those prayers. And I testify to you today that as I look back over my life, that he gave me the heart to obey commandments when nobody else was keeping them around me. When there was no one else. In fact, there were people arguing with me that I shouldn't. He gave me the heart to keep him even in the midst of that. And the furthermore, he's giving me the heart and the ways so that it sustains me, so that the Torah feeds me, and, and I receive the spiritual nourishment that I need to do. And I've made this testimony before. I'll repeat it to you again. I've been teaching the Torah for about 32 years. I haven't run into anything redundant and boring yet. Every Sabbath, it's new. It's fresh. It's alive to me. In fact, I refer to it as being the living Torah. These are my words, my thoughts. This is my life. And I've come to appreciate and love my life the way God loves and appreciates uh, my life. And the Torah is instrumental in giving me that little barometer along the way that I'm on the right path. I'm doing the things the Lord wants me to do. I'm not getting into air. I'm not falling away. I'm not plateauing out and stopping and not going forward. I, I keep walking forward. One of the personal things for me as a Torah teacher, I was enthralled to find out that the sages of Israel say that there are 70 faces to the Torah. Meaning that you can teach the Torah for 70 years in a row before you have to worry about it seeming to repeat yourself. Because the Torah each week is new and fresh and living uh, before it. The, um, those have been the things that have encouraged me. I love the story of Balaam for one particular reason. Uh, God uh, talked through Balaam's donkey. I mean, think about that for a moment. God has the ability 
to use a donkey to give a profound message to another spiritual man. And that's always personally encouraged me. If he can talk through a donkey, then he probably can talk through a guy like me and use me for his purposes. Remembering that not many mighty, not many noble are amongst us, and I'm one of those. He continues to use me, and I've always asked the Lord that I I don't care what you have me do, just I want to know that I'm being used by you, Lord. Take the humble point of view, offer yourself up as a simple earthen vessel, and try to make yourself fit for the Master's use so that he can use you in powerful ways um, in his kingdom. All of us, brethren, are cracked earthen vessels. All of us. But the thing that makes us unique and interesting in terms of the whole creation is that God is in the business of putting the incredible substance of himself into us, these cracked earthen vessels, to do incredible things. It's what's called the power of God. Therefore, our faith is not based on the wisdom of men, the understandings of men. It's based on the power of God. So that's our portion uh, for this week. Shabbat Shalom. you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. I'll sit on a Friday night bringing peace into your home. Families will gather all around saying Shabbat Shalom. Everybody sing. Shalom, shalom, Uh
gift from God has put a smile upon your face. He's got the whole world in his hands, so obey his commands, and you will know peace. Shalom.